It's the 22nd of July, and you're listening to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. Just letting you know that this episode had a couple of audio difficulties, and uh, the co-hosts are Ben Whirling from MSU and Katie Kreuzer from the University of Nebraska. Ben had some pretty serious audio issues, and so he pretty much cuts out right in the beginning and comes back later. All right, Katie, take it away. Hi, everyone. Today's episode is all about late summer cover crops. We have two guests today, Sam Wortman of the University of Nebraska and Marisol Quintanilla Tornell of Michigan State University. Sam studies specialty crop systems and focuses on plant and environmental interactions, local urban and organic fruit and vegetable production, and bio-based management tools to improve farm sustainability. Uh, Marisol works with plant parasitic nematodes and does research looking into how different cover crops help or hurt problematic nematodes. Um, We'd like our listeners to ask Sam and Marisol questions using the Q&A box and make sure to upvote your favorites and Sam and Marisol will tackle those in the back half of the show. So I think we'll go ahead and get started. Ben, we were having some um, issues with your audio. I want to make sure that Edie, I'm, I'm back here. Um, I am going to, um, while you start the show, I will address it and I will okay. come on back in and All right. join the conversation. Okay. Thank Sounds you. Sounds good. Um, well, I think, Sam, we're going to start with you and we'll talk about cover crops in general and then um, we'll pick up with nematodes um, with Marisol and um, as well as her postdoc, Sita, who's joining us. Um but let's just go ahead and start by talking about some of your favorite cover crops that are planted usually in the late summer. And if you want to dive into a little bit of your background, you studied for um, the work that you did with your PhD to kind of provide some background, that'd be great too. Sure. Yeah. So uh, if we're talking about summer cover crops for kind of a July, August window, Uh, For my money, my two favorites are sorghum sudangrass and buckwheat. And um, we we did some research. It's been about six years ago now when I was at the University of Illinois. As Katie mentioned, I'm now at the University of Nebraska, but I was at the University of Illinois for four years. Um, Before that, I did a PhD at the University of Nebraska where I uh, studied cover crop mixtures there and then continued to study cover crop mixtures Uh, while at Illinois. And uh, part of what we were looking at was to try to look at cover crops within a mixture and determine what functions uh, you realize and what functions you maybe lose when you put something like sorghum sudan grass and buckwheat together in a mixture with legumes like soybean and cowpea. And so we tried to measure different things like nitrogen fixation and um, organic matter, uh, biomass, weed suppression, things like that. Uh, and so that's kind of some of the information that I'll draw on in today's conversation. But but yeah, I really like um, sorghum, sudan grass, and buckwheat as good summer cover crops. Um, and um, and as far as nitrogen fixation, I like soybean and and cowpea for the summer window as well. Oh, you're muted, Katie. You think I've learned by now? Um, what about, uh, for building organic matter in the soil, would you still recommend buckwheat or, um, what, what are your best recommendations for that? Yeah. So if the goal is to build soil organic matter, it's really the name of the game is just total net productivity. And so both shoot and root biomass 
And um, I think that sorghum, Sudan grass and buckwheat are still going to be uh, your winners there. So it comes down to total biomass and all, also the carbon to nitrogen ratio of that biomass. Um, and so uh, in our three years of studies across multiple farms, sorghum, Sudan grass was consistently the most productive. Um, and that's a cover crop that a lot of our vegetable growers here in eastern Nebraska will use uh, for that reason to try to build organic matter on the farm. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that's part of the reason that I like those two cover crops is just the productivity that you get so that if you do till that into the soil, uh, you can start to build up that organic matter over time. Okay. Um, and then um, you mentioned um, a little bit about being cost effective. Um, what about um, for erosion control? Is that, um, is there a a crop that you would recommend for that as well? Yeah, so for if your primary goal of using cover crops is to reduce erosion or even to act as a catch crop for nitrates, for example, to try to scavenge any residual nutrients in the soil, my recommendation is to always go with what's least expensive and available to you. So for some growers that maybe have parallel grain and vegetable production, and they may have um, been run crops available. So like oats or rye or even, even field corn. So just getting uh, an actively growing plant in the soil is, and having those roots in the soil is going to do the trick. So use whatever's most cost effective. Uh, we've even done research to use uh, other free plants, things like field pennycress, which is uh, not always popular with people because it's a competitive weed for, for some cropping systems. Uh, but depending on your crop rotation and uh, when certain weeds may emerge and, and be competitive with your cash crop, there may be some less threatening weeds that are not noxious and are not herbicide resistant and don't harbor pests like soybean cyst nematode, which Marisol can talk about. Um, but if you've got some of those free plants available to you, sometimes there's no harm in, in letting those grow to reduce erosion, scavenge nitrates, as long as you can manage them and keep them from going to seed or, or something like that. But, um, but yeah, we've got between both my um, PhD work and work at Illinois, we consistently find that if those are your top priorities, there's no reason to spend a lot of money on cover crops um, because most plants are going to provide those services uh, pretty readily. Thank you. Um, and we, you mentioned this just briefly before, but um talking about multi-species covers um, and we know growers have been encouraged to plant them. Um, can you go into a little bit more depth on what the pros and cons are of using multi-species mixes? Yeah. So, um, so the, the main benefits of a multi-species cover crop mixture is just the, what I call the statistical inevitability of success. So if you put more species in the soil you're kind of hedging your bets a little bit and increasing the likelihood that at least one or two of those do really well, depending on the year, rainfall, temperature, pest pressure, things like that, hail, all those unknowns. And so if you put five or six species out there, there's a good chance that most uh, or a good portion of those will do well. So it's kind of uh, like diversifying your investment portfolio. So it's beneficial from that perspective. A lot of people like mixtures because of the idea anyway that you can realize multiple benefits uh, with one cover crop planting. So for example, uh, if you put 
a legume in there, you can get a little bit of nitrogen fixation. If you mix that with something like sedan grass or rye, you can also get uh, some, maybe some residual weed suppression, either from the biomass or from allelopathic or phytotoxic compounds that they may be released from their roots. Uh, and so, so that's the idea anyway. What you have to be careful about with those mixtures is that um, the composition of what you plant relative to what grows is often very different. And so we call this like self-regulation of the community. So the best example is with the biculture of rye and hairy vetch that, for example, when soil nitrogen levels are very low, you may see that the legume hairy vetch does really well relative to rye. When nitrate levels are high, you may see that rye really takes off and the hairy vetch does not grow as well. And so, um, so you have to be careful in a mixture that, for example, if, if you, the grower, really want nitrogen fixation as an outcome of planting that cover crop, then it's a little bit risky to plant a legume with grasses and, and non-legume um, herbs or forbs because there's a chance that that legume will get outcompeted by those grasses and other, and other non-leguminous forbs. So you just have to uh, weigh those, um, those pros and cons um, because we've seen where, for example, sorghum Sudan grass, which is very competitive and gets to be seven, eight, nine feet tall, that um, you can have very little legume growth and leaf area underneath that canopy. And with a legume like cowpea or soybean, your nitrogen fixation potential is directly related to leaf area and biomass of that plant. So just because you find a little cowpea or soybean growing underneath your sorghum Sudan grass doesn't mean that it's actually fixing measurable amounts of nitrogen, because again, you need a nice big plant to to get those nodules and, and uh, get that fixation potential going in the soil. So, um, so there are some benefits, um, but you want to be clear about what your goal of planting that cover crop is because your, whatever those goals are, they're going to be diluted across all those different species or maybe eliminated if you have intense competition. Yeah. Some good stuff to think about for sure. Um, do you have any pro tips for establishing cover crops in July and August? Yeah, so establishing cover crops in the summer, uh, you know, my experience is mostly in Nebraska and the name of the game is soil moisture. Um, and so my recommendation, two recommendations, one is plant a little bit deeper than you might otherwise if you were going to be planting this crop in the spring when rains are a little bit more frequent and uh, higher volume. So uh, if you can get away with it, uh, you know, you, there are limits uh, for different species on how deep you can plant. But I would, I usually take that recommended seeding depth and maybe go 50% deeper just to make sure that I'm planting into moisture. Um, and then the other thing is if you can help it at all, and you know, of course, if anybody can predict the weather, then they should maybe switch occupations and replace some of the weathermen or weather people. Um, but uh, if you can, if you have a big rain in the forecast, high probability rain in the forecast, then uh, you want to get that cover crop in before that um, because establishment is going to be key. Weed competition is a very real thing with cover crops, just as it is with your cash crops. And so getting quick germination and establishment will be key to having a nice, healthy cover crop stand relative to weeds. So, um, so yeah, those are kind of some of my, my two tips there. Okay. Um, do any cover crops need special planting equipment or specific seedbed preparation? Um, so, 
I mean, a drill is, is kind of the best, um, best planting option for most cover crops. We've, in a lot of our small plot research, we often will broadcast and then incorporate with like a disc, like a harrow disc or um, with a rake. Um, that's not ideal at all. Um, because again, especially for summer cover crops, because you just can't get the seeding depth that you need. It's often tempting to go that route for a cover crop mixture uh, because it's hard to plant multiple species at the same time using something like a traditional seeder or a drill. Um, but if you have a drill, especially if you've got like multiple seed boxes, so some drills are equipped with like a small seed box and a larger seed box, and you can have multiple seeds flowing into the furrow at the same time. Um, uh, or multiple furrows, like a shallow furrow and a deep furrow. That's the ideal system so that you can put your small seeds in one seed box and your big seeds in a different seed box. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's the, the big thing is that if, if at all possible, you want to drill those cover crops, uh, you know, especially even for fall cover crops, it can be hard to catch a rain. Uh, so, you know, aerial seeding, the big downside there is that that seed just doesn't get covered unless you get one of those deep soaking rains. Without that, you're gonna have poor stands. So um, so yeah, the, the, the main equipment would be just a drill. Okay. And then I guess irrigation would be important at, at planting once they're established. Yeah, if you've got sprinkler irrigation, that's a, a nice insurance policy that, um, that you could run that uh, if you're you know, if you thought you were going to catch a rain and you didn't and you need to get it up, then, um, then yeah, a sprinkler irrigation event, you know, of at least a quarter inch could, could help with that. Okay. Um, when is it important to fertilize cover crops? Yeah, there's only probably only two reasons I could think of for, for fertilizing a cover crop. Um, and again, this, this goes back to what the objective of planting the cover crop is. So if you if a grower is really interested in a green manure, so planting a legume to get nitrogen fixation, as I mentioned earlier, the, the key to getting that nitrogen fixation is getting a nice healthy legume because many studies have shown this nice correlation between biomass, leaf area, and nitrogen fixation potential. So I could see a situation where you might wanna put down phosphorus, potassium, or any limiting micronutrients. So if you take a soil test and you find that phosphorus is below sufficiency levels and you want to plant a green manure, then you should probably find a way to get some of those limiting nutrients into the soil so that you get a healthy legume green manure. Um, so that'd be one reason. <clears throat> the other reason is if you're trying to use cover crops for weed suppression. So there's also been a lot of good research, uh, particularly in the Northeast U.S., showing the relationship between how much above ground biomass you need from something like Sudan grass, buckwheat, or even rye, how much biomass you need to get consistent weed suppression in your subsequent cash crop. And so you really, if, if that's the type of system, like a, like a, and a lot of organic growers are trying organic no-till. And um, so if you're going to go with that system, then you really want to make sure that you're growing as healthy of a cover crop as you can so that you maximize that biomass. And so, you know, one system might be to pair a compost or manure application with that cover crop planting. Of course, as vegetable growers, you've got to be mindful of any restrictions on the use of animal manure uh, or you know, animal manure based compost. Um, so, but getting some nutrients out there with that cover crop, if weed suppression is your goal can make sense, but 
you know, of course, if you're using it to scavenge nutrients or reduce erosion, no need for any fertilizer there. Okay, great. Um, well, I appreciate you answering these questions. We're going to shift the conversation um, now and bring Sita um, and Marisol into the conversation and talk about cover crops and nematodes. One of the specific um, areas of cover crops, um, namely their ability to either help or hinder the management of plant parasitic nematodes is what we want to talk about. Um, so to set the stage, I want to ask you what vegetables do plant parasitic nematodes impact the most? Okay, um, so let me respond to that. The answer is that I don't think there's hardly any vegetable or really almost any plant, there's a couple, but most plants, including vegetables, are susceptible to, to nematodes. And there's many different types of nematodes and different nematodes will impact some plants more than others. Um, vegetables though, that the harvestable product is below ground, things like carrots and beets and parsnips, damage to nematodes can go beyond just weight yield, you know, it becomes unmarketable because the fork carrot might weigh the same as an unfork carrot, but people might not want to buy or will not buy a fork carrot. So um, vegetables that their product is below ground, it's part of a root or stem or something that's below ground, um, the damage can have more economic impact than just the plain yield loss or the disease association with the nematode. Um, and um, there are plants, um, there's the vegetables that are more susceptible than, than others. And there's also, as you know, some vegetables that actually have been bred to resist certain nematodes like the MI gene in tomato. That is not the case with many vegetables. A lot of vegetables do not have any nematode resistance. If there is nematode resistance in some vegetables, it is generally just to melodogang, which is root knot. Um, for things such as root lesion or, or many others that I could keep on naming things until you get tired of me listening to names of nematodes, um, there's not too many vegetables that are bred for resistance of these particular nematodes. So the shorter answer is that below ground vegetables have, will, will, have, will be more impacted economically in part because not only quant quantity or weight it's affected, but also the um, marketability of the product such as fork carrots. Thank you, Marisol. Um, and Sita, feel free to hop in as well. Um, That's right. Yeah, sure. Why have oilseed radishes in particular been marketed for nematode suppression? So oilseed radishes are something special in the sense that there are some varieties that seem to control nematodes very well, that seem to be either poor host or non-host or in, in some cases, very poor host to some nematodes. And it seems to be pretty broad because Sita and other people that have tested have found you know, poor reproduction of things like root lesion, root knot, and a few others. So their non-padability to nematodes seems to be more than just to just one 
genus or just one type of nematode. They seem to be generally not tasty to a lot of types of nematodes. So, um, and because they are radishes, they can be planted in the fall and they might have some benefits um, that Sam spoke in things like, you know, improving of, of soil quality or holding the soil, preventing of erosion, and they do freeze in the winter. So um, it's that way you don't have a weed to deal with in the spring, you know, you don't have any weed control. So there's just, there's a, there's a couple of reasons why there are, um, they can be pretty beneficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, only like a little thing I want to add here is like, so in our lab, like we are doing like cover crop trial with the root lesion nematode, root nut nematode, and even like soybean cyst nematode. And in general, like all, we are testing like more than 10 different cultivar of all seed radishes and so many other. But so far, like all those, you know, all those uh, cultivars we are testing are either like a very poor host or like non-host of the nematode like we are testing. Well, they infest, like there is different in the label they prefer, but still like they are they're poor host or like almost non-host to like most economical, like economical important nematode we have in Michigan are like all over the one we are testing. So I think like uh, they, are, they are like good candidate. Yeah, and like for example, a tillage radish would be something daikon radish, the ones with the mm-hmm. big taproot. Those ones tend to be very good host to a lot of this nematode, even in CETAS test, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of daikon radishes tend to be a pretty good host for a lot of these nematodes. But oilseed radishes is in a different category. They are just um, they they, uh, they control nematodes much better. They nematodes are not able to infest them or reproduce as well in them mm-hmm. yeah well one, one thing like based on few meetings like i went to with the farmer like i i feel like they prefer daikon like tillage radish more than olcid radish because olcid radish has like a small root and like daikon has big and that's good for like other soil and other thing but like based on like a nematode point of view like olcid radishes are are better cover crop than than daikon radish. Okay. That is exactly, and um, Sita's uh, comment is perfectly true. Farmers prefer the tillage radish in part because it's. They said they makes their soil soil mellow. It mm-hmm. you know that big tap root kind of breaks down the soil and makes it soft, easy to till, and um, uh, but we we need to evaluate this further, but oilseed radishes also provide similar benefits while at the same time mm-hmm. uh, providing the benefit of nematode suppression. Yeah. Well, that helped answer my next question, um, but I'll, I will follow up anyways. Um, are there other um, cover crops that are good choices um, to help manage nematodes and vegetable rotations? Yes, it depends which nematode you're talking about. If you're talking about northern rootnut nematode, which is a very, very important nematode in several crops, in Michigan and muck soils, it can be a very serious problem in root crops. Um, and northern rootnut nematode is a problem in, in soybeans and, and vegetable, just about every vegetable except for sweet corn. So, so um, that 
northern root nematode could be easily controlled with any kind of cover crop that is a grass. In other words, corn, rye, um, sorghum, wheat, sorghum. So that, I mean, you, oh. you name a grass, mm-hmm. any of them are good. Any of mm-hmm. them are good because their uh, northern root nematode cannot reproduce on grasses. So mm-hmm. that is a simple, uh, for northern root nematode, the option is pretty simple. You have northern root nematode, just rotate with the grass, and the problem can be cut even by almost 60% in one year off, you know, just on a grass. And in two years, it can almost be eliminated to zero. If wow. you just have a constant, I mean, just a grass, you know, you, I guess you have to keep it weed free because most weeds are also host for northern root nematode. But if you have a weed free, let's say sorghum, Sudan grass field, or just corn, just plain field corn for two years, northern root nematode will be virtually eliminated. So that that is the answer for that. For root lesion nematode, there's a couple of other options such as pearl millet, um, black oats, and other other options that are also non, not, uh, not very good host for root lesion nematode, but also for northern root nematode because northern root nematode cannot feed on any grass. For soybean cyst nematode, the answer is even simpler. Most cover crops are either poor host or non-host for soybean cyst nematode, because soybean cyst nematode is very specialized. It tends to feed on mostly legumes and a few weeds and a few other plants, but just about every radish is a very either a very poor host and non-host. Every grass is a non-host, and most most other cover crops except legumes are either a very poor host or non-host. So um, the answer is like yes, there's other options. Um, oilseed radishes is something that fits in a very special window because it can be planted, you know, in the fall and it can grow well in the cold, in, in the cold, colder weather, and it can kind of break up the soil. And it, it has certain benefits um, or it has certain characteristics that other crops don't have. Like you can't plant sorghum Sudan grass in the fall, at least not in Michigan, because you know, it's pretty much a summer cover crop. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some reasons why oilseed radishes fit very well in some cases. Okay, wow. Okay. Um, thank you, Marisol and Sita, for joining us. And thank you, Sam, for joining us. I really enjoyed our, our discussion today. What we're going to do next is move into the Q&A portion of our webcast. Um, and for those of you who... Um, are online with us, please submit your questions via the Q&A box. Um, if you are calling in, we will give you a chance to speak up um, and you can raise your hand to indicate that by hitting star nine. Um, but before we do that, Katie, what are we talking about next week? On tap for next week, we are talking about avoiding wormageddon in sweet corn. Same place, same time. Um, www.glveg.net slash listen, 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central. You can email any of your burning questions along with your phone number to greatlakesvegwg at gmail.com. And today this production is supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And our episode today was supported by Brassica number five. (laughs) 
for the days when he says, take some me time today, you deserve it. I'll side dress the veggies. And when she says, it's just a food safety audit, I got this. You can go cultivate all day until it's over. Show them you love them by wearing Brassica number five. Only perfume with a sulfurous, sensual scent of oilseed radish decaying after the spring thaw. Thaw their hearts with Brassica number five by Melvin Stein. All right. So <laughs> we will move into the Q&A now. Um, for uh, participants, there's um, a couple of ways that you can participate in the live Q&A portion. Um, the first way is to put the questions in the Q&A box. And you can also upvote someone else's question if you want to put it to the top of the discussion list. Um, the chat box should be used for comments so we don't lose track of the questions coming in. And finally, if it's easier for you, you can raise your hand and we can unmute you to speak together. Um, we will handle all the online questions um, before we move to the phones. Um, and then if you're dialing in from a telephone, you can press star nine um, to be unmuted to ask a question. So it looks like we've got a question here. Um, would you suggest mustard biofumigation for seed biofumigation be seeded in the spring and worked in during the summer or planted in the summer and worked in during the fall? Um, let me answer that question regarding biofumigation. Biofumigation is somewhat tricky. It doesn't work every time um, in the sense that not every time you achieve enough um, of, of, of the compound in order to kill nematodes. There's certain things that need to happen together. One is that you need to have the right variety of cover crop for fire biofumigation, you need a brassica that is very spicy. In other words, something like when you eat wasabi that burns your nose, something very spicy that has a lot of that um, um, mustard oil. So another thing is that you need to reach very big biomass. You need big plants. You need a lot of plants in order to have a lot of this material. You need to have this right soil characteristics. You know, it needs to be not too wet, not too dry, just right. And then also you need to have the right soil temperatures because you need you need to degrade that plant material pretty rapidly. So you don't want to have very cold soil either, um, which could happen in the fall. I mean, it, I think th those two options could happen. I mean, you, you it, it could work out in both ways, but um, all those things need to line up, you know? You, you need to have good biomass, you need to have pretty warm soil temperatures, and hopefully you wanna trap the gases. So in some publications where it shows that it's extremely effective, they have tarped after tilling under the product. So biofumigation doesn't work by just planting some brassica that is spicy and then just growing it. You need to grow it to pretty high, you know, pretty big, and then you need to till it under, incorporate it in the soil, and let it biodegrade in the soil. Uh, and the soil needs to be at the right temperature. And the most effective publications that I have seen, where I have seen the biggest effect on nematodes, they have actually tarped. So this is not something that might work for every grower or in every operation. It might work for high value crops 
where it might make sense to, or economically to do that much management and TARP. So, um, thank you, Marisol. I, I wanted to add a follow-up with that. You mentioned um, a couple of keys to doing that successfully. And one that I think you mentioned is you need lots of that mustard oil, which means you need, you need really good biomass. And one of the questions our listener had was, um, and maybe Sam can chime in too, um, is it better to plant the mustard in the spring or is it better to plant it in the um, late summer, fall? And I think really that biomass is... I think the spring would be better because you need to reach pretty good biomass. Um, I, I mean, if, you're, if we're talking up north, yeah, I think the spring, maybe if you're talking further down south and the, the plant can grow throughout the fall and the winter, and then you can till, you know, I, it, I guess it's supposed, it, it depends regionally, but if you're talking strictly in Michigan and northern areas, then then yes, in the spring and reaching pretty good biomass and being able to till in under in a hot spring day or a hot summer day, you know, you'll get different results that if you plant it in the fall and then you till it under in a very cold November day, you know, that that's going to, you're going to get totally different results there, Ben. But, you know, like very, very good results for biofumigations that I have seen in some publications are from Hawaii in which, you know, they can plant it anytime because it's tropical and then you can reach good biomass and then you till it under any time of the year because you have warm soils any time of the year and they tarp it. So I think it is less about the date as in reaching the right conditions. And I think in places such as Michigan, I don't think you can reach the right conditions by planting in the fall. Or well, I think it'd be hard hard to get the stars to line up right to get the right conditions. And Sita, I don't know if you want to add something to that. Maybe you probably reviewed the literature a little bit more than I. I agree, so I think I agree with what you're saying. I mean, it's a, well, we, we our, our lab, we haven't done any research, but based on literature, like, yeah, I mean, you need big biomass if you really need to do then early planting where you can reach like, you know, big biomass would be the good time. Yeah, and when we're talking, I, I because I think there's a confusion and I want to make sure that all the growers hear this very well. Biofumigation, it is not the reason, the main reason why a lot of these cover crops that me and Sita are testing and other people are testing, that they're having an effect on nematode. This is not the main reason. The main reason why they are working is because they're either poor host or non-host, or they might have some other properties beyond or that. Or like such as trap crop. Properties. Trap crop. That's yeah. right. So... These crops can help control nematodes beyond biofumigation. Biofumigation is a powerful tool, but it's kind of a hit or miss. It's kind of hard to hit. You need all the things to line up, you know, all the different conditions. For acid, like a lot of this, and I, I, I'm going to share my screen right here. You can see in our results, our CETA's results, you can see that there's, these are different kinds of radishes in control of nematodes. And you can see that the variety, the oilseed radishes called Control, we have two brands there from two different companies, Concord, um, Defender, and a few others are very effective um, for controlling 
root lesion nematode. Root lesion nematode is a nematode just, just about effects can feed on any plant, corn, soybeans, vegetables, everything. So the, the, however, it doesn't seem to do very well in these specific oilseed radish. Dwarf Essex rape, it is not an oilseed radish, but it also seems to be poor host. And you can see that tillage radish there, the typical daikon type, is a pretty good host. The only one that is a better host is carrot, and carrot is like sugar candy for root lesion nematode. So the, the point is, I don't want you to think that biofumigation is the whole story or the only tool in the toolbox. I would call it a minor tool in the toolbox here in the north. Uh, and that, that, so I just want you to, to see this graph right here that Sita produced. This is all thanks to Sita. She does the work. I just do some of the talking. So there is yeah. one thing, Marisol, I want to add. Like, well, this, this was host evaluation and it shows like it is not good host. And there are, uh, so I think for biofumigation, they, they're talking about mechanism. So that's right. With this one, there is another thing we are testing and which is like, is this crop like, which is a non-host or poor host, do they like stimulate nematode hatching or like, you know, like how it act on. So we're gonna come like, you know, with the, like a lot of other things that gonna add up and that will help us to, you know, pick a right, right crop. That's right. And when we think of biofumigation, biofumigation, you know, fumi fumigant, we put like something like methyl bromide, which is an old fumigant. You put a gas in the soil and it kills, kills the nematodes. This is the main idea with the biofumigation. You put all these biomass, these plants in the soil, it releases this mustard gas, which is kind of similar to tear gas, really. Um, and it kills some of the nematodes. So this is totally different than when we're doing this trial here as just being poor host, non-host, or some other... Um, for, or some other things like uh, being a trap crop. So the biofumigation is something kind of hard to do. It kind of takes some effort. You need to till it under. You need to have good biomass. You need to have warm soil conditions. For this graph that I'm showing you right here, we did nothing besides planting the seeds. You know, the plant grew, nothing else. You don't, you don't need the right, you, you don't need all those conditions. You don't need the stars to align. You just need, to plant the seed. So um, that's a big difference between um, this and biofumigation. Hey, thank you for sharing all that, Marisol um, and Sita. Um, thanks for your time today. I wanna um, also make sure, so we're almost to the end of our Q&A time. Um, and I wanted to make sure that um, we could share some of Sam's information they shared in the chat too. And Katie, um, if you could do that, that would be excellent. Yeah, well, I think picking up on the end of Marisol's conversation just about planting um, and an attendee had asked about um, rates of planting. So, um, Sam, would you um, help us understand that a little bit? Yeah, so there were some questions about um, rates for cover crops by themselves or in mixture. Um, so there's, you know, wide recommendations depending on your region uh, for different cover crops that you can get through for example NRCS uh, with for Sudan grass uh, we're looking at for us it's about somewhere in that 30 to 40 pounds of seed per acre range buckwheat's a little bit higher um, but for mixtures what we typically do um, at least for research purposes we always just divide that monoculture or single species rate by the number of species that we put in the mixture in a proportional way uh, but uh, 
for a grower, I would suggest modifying those proportions depending on where you want to focus uh, your investment and what types of outcomes you want to prioritize. So again, going back to that example of, of nitrogen fixation, if you want to ensure that that legume in your mixture uh, can compete with the grasses and the buckwheats in your mixture, then I would suggest increasing the proportion of that legume in your mixture beyond what it would be by just simply dividing by the number of species in mixture. Great. Um, what, what do you recommend for best summer crop cover crop choices for coarse textured soils? loamy sand or sandy loam? Yeah, and um, my my Sudan grass recommendation holds on that one uh, because Sudan grass and sorghum in general is very broadly adapted, including to coarse textured kind of droughty soils that are susceptible to wetting and drying cycles. And so um, buckwheat is, is broadly adapted as well, but probably a little bit less uh, drought tolerant than Sudan grass. Um, so that's that's my recommendation there. Great. Um, I think there was one other question about um, if you add buckwheat to a grass type cover crop, um, is there a way to control broadleaf weeds like pigweed? Yeah, that was a good question. Um, and something that if you are interested in mixtures, that's another one of those potential, I guess, cons of planting mixtures is that the more species you have in the, in the mix, the more complicated it becomes to manage both from a planting perspective and then also a termination perspective. And then also, as this um, person points out, if you have uh, an invasion of a particularly problematic weed like pigweed, maybe it's herbicide resistant and you want to control it right when you see it, if you want to you know, maintain those chemical options, then keeping just a grass only cover crop like sorghum sudan grass would be a better option because you could maybe plant your sorghum sudan grass that comes up. And if you have a stand of pigweed in that mixture, um, early on, you could spray that and control the pigweed while allowing the Sudan grass uh, using a selective uh, herbicide. You could keep that Sudan grass cover crop coming along. So, um, so you gotta you have to consider those, and that's why, again, that that mixture is really going to be farm specific and tailored to your specific needs and objectives. And uh, one thing I'll add, going back to the question about you know when to plant a mustard cover crop. Uh, I'll definitely defer to Marisol on, and, and Sita on the biofumigation aspect, but just one observation in growing different mustard cover crops in both Nebraska and Illinois, both in the spring, summer, and fall, is that the growth habit of those uh, brassicas is very different depending on the time of year that you grow them. So again, knowing what your objective is, if it's biomass or if it's you know biomass for fumigation purposes, that's one thing, but if you're trying to use that tillage radish, as the name suggests, to provide some biological tillage, then uh, you want to be careful in when you plant that, because what we've observed with something like tillage radish is that if you want that nice, deep, large taproot, you need to plant it in August um, or around August. If you plant that in April or May, it's going to flower based on day length, and you're going to get a taproot that looks really no different than a standard mustard cover crop, um, and so you're not going to get that big tillage root. Uh, it's still a nice cover crop and is maybe good for biofumigation if you till that mm -hmm. biomass into the soil. Um, so you just have to, again, think about what your objectives are and know that each of these cover crops is going to take on slightly different growth habits and morphology depending on when planted. And Sam, I just wanted to add, um, that's a great point. Um, so we've had folks you 
um, testing mustards, for example, in both spring and fall planting windows. But what we have noticed um, is that establishment and growth are better in that August time window. Um, but that's kind of aside from soil conditions that Marisol talked about. But if you're wanting to get reliable, good biomass establishment, um, at least in Michigan, early to mid-August is a good time window for mustards in, in radishes as well. Yeah. Um, Katie, do we have any other questions on in the Q&A? I think we have covered them all. Katie, I think I'll echo both our sentiments and say we really appreciate you, Sam, Marisol, and Sita being with us. It, um, really informative and interesting conversation. Yeah. Thank I, you very much, Ben. All the panelists and all the attendees um, for participating today. Yep. Thank yeah. you, guys. Thank you for having me, too. You can catch um, next week's episode of Avoiding Warmageddon in Sweet Corn, same time, same place. Um, and you can also catch um, previous recordings of episodes. Um, we began this in May, so there's we've covered quite a few topics. So um, that's also available on the website as well. So we look forward to seeing everybody next week. All right. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Sam and Marisol and Sita and, and Mike. Have a great rest of your week, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.